Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. It's Friday, May 25th. It's the Friday of our Memorial Day weekend. And one of our Caregiving Visionary Award winners is going to join us in just a few moments. Amanda Singleton has her own law firm. She's a former family caregiver, and she has really combined both experiences to create a law firm that's all about the family caregiver. And she's going to join us in just a couple minutes to talk about her vision for family caregivers and her story of caregiving. Just a quick update. We are moving into the next five months prior to our National Caregiving Conference, which means that over the summer and then into the fall, we'll, have be, we'll be hosting various comp, uh, contests to help you come to Chicago. And we're also going to be opening up registration. So look for updates beginning in June of when you can register to join us. You can come to Chicago. Our conference is November 9th and 10th. We have an opening reception on the evening of November 8th. We also have pre- and post-conference training. So if you're coming to our conference and have been thinking about our Certified Caregiving Consultant Training Program, you can actually take that training program on the 8th or the 11th. So we've worked it out so that if you come to Chicago, we're going to offer you opportunities to really take advantage of it. If you can't make it to Chicago, we are going to broadcast both days of our conference. So you can watch online for free sessions, which will be broadcast on November 9th and 10th. If you plan on watching virtually, we'll ask you to register for that as well. There's no charge. We just want to make sure that we provide you with updates, that you're aware of the agenda for the live broadcast, and that you have the link to join us to watch virtually. Our next contest that we're going to start is our keynote contest, which means that if you are in a caregiving situation or you've previously cared for a family member, you could be our keynote presenter at our conference. So look for information about that in June on caregiving.com. Okay, those are the updates for you. So joining me this morning is Amanda Singleton. She's one of our five 2018 Caregiving Visionary Award winners. Amanda is the owner of Singleton Legal, which is a caregiver-centered law firm. Through her experiences as a family caregiver, she was led to become an advocate for all caregivers. Her vision is to see her clients plan to care and be cared for so that they can be prepared and supported when the time comes. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Denise. So caregiving started for you when you were 30, and it started with your mom. Tell us about what that experience was like for you and how it's really driven your decisions that you make today in terms of personal choices, and where your career is right now. Well, yes, my first caregiving experience came out of nowhere, and it completely turned my life upside down. Um, My mom and I were very close. She was young. She was 60, and I was 30. And she was really vibrant, um, full of life, single lady who traveled the world. She worked three jobs, and she was just 
awesome. You know, she was just a powerful force of a person. And um, her name, I called her Cookie. And so Cookie um, and I talked, you know, every couple days. And it was unusual that she called me, you know, at 7 a.m. on a Friday morning. I was getting ready for work. And she said, I'm in the hospital and they think I have brain tumors. Can you come? And once I, you know, collected my stomach, you know, off the, off of the ground because I had that huge roller coaster drop, you know, in that moment yeah. when people get the phone call. And for me, that was the moment. That was the phone call, you know, um, in Joan Didion's book on grief, the year of magical thinking, she calls it the ordinary instant. And that was it for me. I was just, I was in the bathroom getting ready for work. And uh, so I flew to the hospital and um, within two hours, my mom was in brain surgery. And by that night, I was able to sort of <laughs> needle the uh, critical ICU nurse into telling me a little bit more than what the neurosurgeon was able to. And what he said was that from the scans and the surgery, it was very clear that Cookie had, uh, she was riddled with cancer and that the diagnosis would be very grim once it was complete. And for me, that was the moment I became a caregiver. And the whole story is that people don't identify as caregivers. They don't think of themselves as caregivers. And for me, you know, my heart just broke. And it was so crystal clear at that moment, this is caregiving. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that Cookie has as much quality of life for the time that she has left, whatever it is. And that was a promise that I did my very best to fulfill. And she lived for a year and three days, but she did not have good quality of life. She had very aggressive treatment, her choice. She wanted to try. And when we talked about it, she said, if I had known <laughs> how much this would take out of me, I would not have gone this route, but I'm proud of myself for trying. And uh, she lost the ability to walk and talk and eat and do anything for herself, which was very hard, as you can imagine, for an independent young person. And for my part, I was uh, really spinning my wheels, trying to keep it all in the air, trying to keep that promise, trying to keep my job. Uh, my husband and I had just gotten married uh, the year before, and we bought a house, which was not very close to where my mom lived. And I really tried to do it all. And in that time, I realized that no one person can do all of this, and um, this is not sustainable long term. And I had my law degree, and so I was able to, you know, really be able to bulldog insurance systems or, you know, understand legal paperwork and how to fill it out. And oh, so many things that presented themselves during that experience were a mystery to me, you know, doing a social security application for disability, um, insurance appeals for someone that is a personal person, you know, not, not a neutral kind of a client, you know. And I thought, how do people do this? And from talking to others in that experience, a lot of times they um, slip through the cracks and they don't reach out for resources. And that was the point where I resolved when, when we get through this, whatever it looks like, when this is over, my caregiving experience with Cookie, I really want to help other caregivers. And so I lost my job uh, when my medical leave ran out. But that was kind of a blessing because it gave me the opportunity to pursue 
being a caregiver advocate, and it led to opening my firm. I just want to mention that the book I loved from Joan Didion was Blue Night. Mm. Did you read Blue Night? I haven't yet. It's on my list, though. Oh, I love that book. Now, we we used to do a book club, and I would have family caregivers get together for a podcast, and we would talk about a book. I was like the only one that loved Blue Nights, but I loved it. I loved it. Anyway. Her writing style is just lovely. I, I will. Yeah. I'll let you know what I think of it. And yeah. her writing style is is just phenomenal. So um, she really, she, her voice really speaks to me. You know what's interesting about your story is that you connected with the right healthcare professional to give you the right information. That you you innately understood that they probably were not telling you exactly what was going on, or at least one healthcare professional wasn't. And then you found the one who would. And in that interaction, what I find so fascinating is that no one actually identified you as the primary family caregiver. And in in identifying you, gave you resources, support, additional suggestions that could help. And one of my frustrations with this, um, you know, we know that family caregivers don't self-identify, but to me, I think, of course not. Why should they? <laughs> They're in a health right, system right. to do it. I mean, why is it the family caregiver's responsibility when they are in the midst of one of the worst times in their life? Why do they have to worry about who they call themselves when the healthcare system yes. could identify them? It just drives me nuts. It makes me crazy. I'm with you. I'm with yes. you. And, you know, I, I will sense. say... It doesn't, but there is a push. There is a movement to change this, the way that the way that family members and loved ones are supported by the medical providers and community. I believe that it will not be this way in our system forever. It has been my experience. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, not just that, that one harrowing day, but truly throughout, you know, there were a lot of testy and terse interactions that I had where I really had to push to get information, to get, to get noticed, you know, and I understand I'm, I'm not a front of the line, me first kind of person. I'm not, but when a person's situation is critical and they're your person, they're not just a number. They're not just another file folder in the desk. You want your attention paid when it is an imminent situation, which we had frequently in that year. Mm -hmm. And I was, really surprised at um, sort of the apathy or indifference and the failure to notice that I was a young person who was struggling. And, you know, now after a few caregiving experiences in life and, um, you know, many sleepless nights, I look about my age, but at that time I really did not look to be a 30 year old. And so I was surprised, you know, I was almost a little even miffed that nobody said, are you okay? Are you doing this all yourself? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I thought, where yeah. are the grown-ups in the room? And then it occurred to me, I am the grown-up in this room, and I yeah. have to do what I have to do. Yeah. And I think that's not an uncommon experience. What is happening, too, is that we are seeing shifts because so many people have been through a caregiving experience, at least one already. They might be experiencing a second 
and they're not going to go through it the way they did it the first time. And because they have this experience, which was transformative, what they're looking to is transforming the entire experience. It's not just transforming it for themselves. It's transforming it for everyone, which is what you talked about when I read what your vision is. It's not just about me anymore. It's about everyone. And what's interesting is I, I feel blessed to have the perspective of time, to have the decades of looking at the family caregiver experience because I can see the change. And I think it's mm-hmm. because enough have already been through it once that they're not going to go through it the same the second time and they're not going to let anybody else go through it the way they did. So the movement is organic. It's grassroots. It's coming up. It's bubbling up. And I think that there's enough now that are not going to accept the way it was and change the way it is. So go ahead. I'm sorry. And isn't that such a beautiful thing, you know, that this industry, I don't, I don't really like calling it an industry, but people who work with caregivers who have innovations for caregivers, almost all of the time they have had that transformative experience. And so there's this relatability in our community that I, you know, I love, I love connecting with other caregivers and people who are in supportive resources or businesses because they get it. You know, there's an Mm -hmm. empathy there that it can't be, it can't be created, you know, any other way than having walked a similar road. Absolutely. And what's interesting is that if you think about family caregivers, it's not just like you and I are family caregivers. There are family caregivers within the healthcare system, and they are experiencing the healthcare system from the perspective of family caregivers. And that's going to drive change as well. Because how they interact, even if it just changes one interaction that they have as a healthcare professional with a family caregiver, that's one better interaction. And that becomes the first of many something that we're going to do at this year's conference, and I'm thrilled that you're going to be with us at the conference this oh, year so in November. Yeah, wait. we're doing our, our Caregiving in the Workplace Summit, which is a special event we've done twice before. We rolled it up into our national conference so that people have an easier time getting to it. And Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, who's organizing that summit, is looking at it from the perspective of what's it like to be both the healthcare professional and the family caregiver? How do they manage mm-hmm. dual roles, which turn into 24-7 caregiving? And then what's the change within the healthcare system because of that? What are the supports that a healthcare system can put into place to support that working healthcare, healthcare professional who's also the family caregiver? And I think when the changes happen for the employees, I think it will change then what happens for the family caregivers and our carees. Yes. When you think about your experiences in the healthcare system, what would you love to see that's different now than what you experienced? I think the biggest key in, is preventing the fragmentation of the system that's here today. It's like how you said, why should the caregivers be the one to figure it all out, right? And they should not be the conductors of the train, you know, and they are, they're the first, 
they're the first medical provider at home. They're the first one to see what's changing, what's different. And that is great because no one knows the care partner better than the caregiver. However, for me, I felt like nobody was talking to one another and there would be things that um, Cookie and I would catch. So my mom was a pharmacist and she caught a few times things with her medication. And she said, wait, 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 that isn't right. (laughs) And then having to address that with multiple medical providers, you know, to me, I feel like we have the technology and we obviously have the need to ensure that there's a better communication and a better clear objective when taking somebody through a um, medical crisis and in her case, treatment for cancer. But I mean, for any condition that requires medical providers and a long-term caregiving situation, it should not be for the patient and the caregiver to coordinate in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's really just astonishing. And you think, thank goodness your mom was a pharmacist. Could you imagine what would happen if she wasn't? Yeah. So in a situation (laughs) where she's already not feeling well, she is not feeling well there could have been a mistake that would have made her feel worse. Oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That was quite an education. Yeah. We had a video chat in April with Bruce McIntyre. One of the points that you brought out, which I thought was so helpful to talk about was the financial implications of a caregiving experience on your family and that you feel like, okay, we're still recovering. We can. We will. Mm-hmm. However, it's harder for others. What yes. have you learned about what happens to the finances, to your own personal financial situation during a caregiving experience? Well, uh, I can't remember if we talked numbers when um, you, you, Bruce, and I talked. But so the average out-of-pocket cost for a caregiver is five to seven thousand dollars a year not a lot of people have five to seven thousand extra dollars you know um, and those costs can be significantly more you couple that with the issue of caregiving and working balancing that and a lot of people step away from their jobs they take reduced hours they take unpaid fmla where if you have multiple grown-ups in the house, everybody works. You cannot support a family on one income the way that you used to be able to, not that long ago, just a few generations ago. And so there are these problems that are sort of pounding, you know, and the financial implications are difficult. We need to make sure that caregivers who are working stay working, so that they can keep the lights on and keep food on the table. And that we also all take a little bit of personal responsibility when we can financially plan for the future to allocate some of our resources for the what ifs, you know. Um, I have a friend who works in uh, long-term care planning, and she has a line that I always like, which is, if you don't allocate some of your assets to long-term care, then you're going to allocate all of your assets to long-term care eventually. And I always think that's pretty funny. Uh, but the planning for it is is critical. It is another major life event that you may not have, but you might. And so to plan for it 
is key. The financial implications for a lot of people are that when they're caregivers, they're multi-time caregivers, um, they are sandwich caregivers, and then they end up sort of in a cycle of um, depressed economic status that they, you know, are likely to remain at the poverty line or below the poverty line because they can't grow their career, they can't work at all because of these at-home caregiving duties. So it's significant. It's a big issue for me um, with the future of caregiving in our society. Yeah, I honestly, I did think, I think it was yesterday, and I don't know what made me look at it from this person. Oh, I was with my niece who was with her grandmother, so her father's mother, Mm -hmm. which is not so the other side of the family, the outlaws is that what they refer to us, and so we refer to them as back. <laughs> yep. so, so we were at um, our, our, our fitness center here in the same suburb that we live. Her grandmother has Alzheimer's disease, and she was spending the day with her. And so she brought her grandmother to the pool to get a break. And then I met them, and we sat outside. And it was lovely. And the, what struck me is I thought, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do when everybody has a carry that they bring with them? How is this going to work right. out? Yeah. Right. How is this yeah. going to manage within our communities, within our workplaces? I often think at some point we're going to have workplaces that are just empty cubes because we are out in the hospital with our carries or at home with our carries. We're just not going to be at work mm-hmm. with our carries, but we're going to still need to work. And businesses need to continue. And in order for businesses to continue, there have to be some changes within that workplace that helps. And you have that perspective of the lost job, which is awful. And that was, it was, it was such a, you know, talk about being kicked while you're down. (laughs) Yeah, Um, sure. In in a lot of ways it was, yeah. And in a lot of ways it was a, it was a blessing because my mom passed not too long after. So the, you know, the mo- couple of months that uh, before she passed where I did, you know, I didn't have to keep that ball in the air anymore. That was kind of a gift. But the, you know, the stress wasn't great. The, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do stress wasn't, was not ideal. But, you know, I should say on the, on the workplace issue, I did a webinar with AARP this week on this issue, on what employers are doing to address the needs of their caregiving employees. Um, and there's so much that's happening. There's such a trend. And that can be found online um, at the AARP site. It's called Juggling It All, uh, Balancing Work and Caregiving. And I so believe that the future is that employers have to be flexible. They have to address this issue. They have a diverse workforce now. And people are multi-generational caregivers. And like you said, there are not going to be enough people. <laughs> and so no, for me, no. employers want to keep their talented and qualified employees because there aren't going to be enough in the pool to fill, to fill those right. spots. So the accommodations are essential. And, you know, to the point we have the technology that people can work remotely, they can work flexibly, and that's great because it's meeting the, the gap that we have. And sometimes remote working is more productive, you know, frequently. So, you know, it doesn't, 
it's not a lesser than, it's just a different than. Were you expecting that you would lose your job? Yes. <laughs> Based okay. on the conversations that I had with my uh, with my employer at the time and the general vibe that I got, and also the knowledge that I was not doing what I had done before I was a caregiver, which was uh, traveling pretty frequently and managing a fairly large caseload and um, the time just wasn't there to put in, you know, I'm sure you've heard attorneys and their billable hours, all that. And so, and so when FMLA started, I was, but if I couldn't go, then the job would not be available to me. So, so yes, I did expect it. I, Mm. Do you remember the moment when you thought and realized, okay, I am going to lose my job because of this? Yes. And it was, like I said, a few conversations. And I remember thinking, and I think we talked about this um, maybe before, that it's going to be okay. You know, the day mm-hmm. I, when I went to law school I and mean, education was so important to my mom, to cookie, she had a PhD, her mother immigrated from Albania and had about up to an eighth grade education, which was about average for girls um, in Albania at that time. And, you know, could read and write a little Greek, but, you know, really not incredibly literate and lived in a cave for a period of time before they before wow. they immigrated. So for wow. my grandmother wow. in one generation to and she raised my mom on her own to raise my mom to get a PhD. That was big and education was big to my mom. And she said if you educate yourself, then you can always stand on your own two feet. I said okay. I, I, I bought into that. I believe it too. And so I got my law degree and it's expensive. And when I started law school, I, I said, I'm going to do everything I can to make the most of this experience. And I'm really proud of what I accomplished in law school. And I worked hard. I met my husband and he's really bright and he didn't work as hard as I did because he really didn't have to, you know, he was, he's a pretty, pretty bright dude. But for me, I, you know, I have to grind it out and I worked and I worked and I graduated at the top of my class and the day I graduated was a big deal to me. You know, my mom was Chris weepy and, you know, I'm so proud of you and all of that, but I was proud of me, which is a totally different feeling. And I knew that day that no matter what happened in my life, that I can support myself. I can support my family and that will never be lost on me and what an incredible privilege that is. You know, like, no matter what happens, I can build back. And so I do remember the moment, and it was a kick in the gut. But it wasn't the biggest loss I was dealing with, you know. It was Mm -hmm. a loss in a series of losses. But to me, every, like, like my mom was everything at that time. And the job was, you know, okay. (laughs) You know, this is this is not forever. This is just for now. And, you know, it's taken, you know, years 
to start to build back. And some of it's by choice. I opened a business. I'm an entrepreneur and that's, um, there's risk associated with that. It's not as comfortable as taking a corporate job, but I, um, I have a daughter and when she was born, I really resolved that I wanted to show her what it's like to pursue a dream. And so I'm, so I'm doing it, but it is because of that education It is because of that very privileged position that I'm in that I get to do this. Wow. That's awesome. And I love that you, you embrace that perspective that caregiving showed you, which is what's really important right now. And it's my mom because I can't replace my mom and I can't replace the time that I could have spent with her. This is it. This is what I get. And so I'm going to take that. I'm going to take my mom. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and of course she said, well, I don't want you to lose your job. But, (laughs) you know, sometimes sometimes something has to give, you know, Denise. Yeah. 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 Because you would have lost so much more if you had said, okay, the priority is I must keep my job. And I think when we talk about this, we realize that there are others who are in this no-win situation where they have to keep the money coming in. And, oh, my gosh, how hard is that when you think, yep. I have to keep it, and I am worried about the price I pay because I have to keep it, and there is no other yes. choice. There is no other choice. Yes. Yeah. That's what we're working to change. That's what we're working to change. That's right. Amanda, this was just awesome. So for our listeners who'd like to be in touch with you, what's your website address? Um, oh, thank you so much for having me, Denise. It has, it's been awesome. I love getting to know you, and I'm so excited for Chicago. Um, Yay. If anybody wants to get in touch, yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, <laughs> there are a few ways. My, my website is www.singletonlegal.com. I'm on Twitter as the caregiver lawyer, and that's at Singleton Legal. I am also active now in the AARP uh, community forums. They have caregiving forums, and I'm on there now to sort of address questions and facilitate conversations about some of these things that matter to planning for caregiving. And then when you're in the you know, sort of fire of caregiving about the legal and financial concerns. So I can be found on there as well. And I want to mention that AARP is our title sponsor this year at our National Caregiving Conference, and we are just honored and thrilled that they are a part of this year's conference. So we love what AARP is doing. Yeah, we're thrilled to have them as a partner, and we're thrilled at the work that they have done and continue to do to support family caregivers. Amy Goyer, who's the AARP caregiving expert, joins us on Tuesdays for our care chat on Twitter, which is 1 p.m. Eastern time. So you can also connect with Amy there as well. Amanda, thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday weekend, and thank you for all you do. We are so grateful. Thank you, Denise. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.